Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific Century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. Today, we're really pleased to be joined by our old and good friend, John Gans, who's the Director of Communications and Research at Perry World House, the University of Pennsylvania's Global Policy Institute. John is also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and we worked together for years in government. Yeah, and John previously served as the Chief Speechwriter to Secretary of Defense Ash Carter at the Pentagon where we spent a lot of quality time together in in spots in India. Uh, John, it's good to see you here. And he also served as senior speechwriter to Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel and Treasury Secretary Jack Lew. So, John, we're really excited to welcome you to Tea Leaves today. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, John, just real quickly, I just want to start you off. So you've just published a book, and you've been out promoting it. And it's very timely, and it's called... White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. So so basically, it's a book about the NSC from its origins uh, in 1947 after the National Security Act, and you trace it through its more recent manifestations, and you point out uh, how it's come to play an absolutely central role in the formulation and execution of American strategy when we're in conflict. So tell us, you know, for readers who are always looking for a good book, and this is a good book, it's, I had a chance to work with John when he was finishing up his PhD, which is similar to this book, although this book is a little bit more sexy and kind of exciting. And worked so on this. tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, when I was a uh, first came to Washington after I was sort of a 9-11 kid in the sense of I was in New York on 9-11 and, and actually worked for Federal Emergency Management Agency at Ground Zero for six weeks after 9-11. And so I got sort of deeply interested in national security in the post 9-11 era and to a degree got interested in understanding how decisions can go awry in war in part because that's what I got to witness for the first 10 years of the decade. And so for me, when I was looking for a dissertation topic at Johns Hopkins, I was looking for something to understand how decisions got made in war. And I got, came up with the idea of just looking at the National Security Council. And I went to my advisor and he said, well, there's dozens of books written on the National Security Council. And, and he said, go read them and tell me what you think. And I went back and read them and there actually weren't that many. There's a, there's just a few. And there were very few that actually looked at the staffers themselves, right? The, so the who's that advisor? Uh, Elliot Cohen. So let's tell Elliot just on the air that he was wrong. That there's not <laughs> dozens of books. There's a couple. Yeah, well, that's what you're supposed to do as a dissertation writer. You're just supposed to eventually be able to tell your advisor he was wrong or <laughs> she was wrong. And so uh, I went and uh, I said, there's a, there's a, any civil letters or dissertation. And so... I wanted to look at the staffers themselves um, because I think you, there's a lot of talk about the council, which is kind of a forum of the sort of biggest names in national security. But my theory was is that these staffers have to have an impact. And part of that's pop culture, right? Like coming and like watching the West Wing. But part of it is just spending time in Washington and sort of knowing this town a little bit and saying there's something here. And so I wanted to sort of highlight them. And what I did was I found staffers from Truman to Trump, individuals who basically stood up, said something, and, and fought for what they thought was right, but affected every war that the United States has fought since 1947. That's that's totally fascinating. And so as you, as you think about that from Truman to Trump, uh, do you have kind of a best functioning kind of staffer or set of staffers and, and a model 
And then also the counterexample, where has it, where have the wheels totally come off? Yeah, unfortunately, I would say that America's wars since 1947 have, have given a lot of bad examples. Uh, and I think to a degree, the staffers have been of, uh, a, it's a mixed track record. And I think for, the, for that, that's driven by two real reasons. The first is staffers tend to be really good at saying there's a problem. Something's not working. But everybody in Washington is kind of good at saying there's a problem. Like, hey, this initiative isn't working. You know, um, hey, this this strategy isn't working. But they're very bad at sort of saying, hey, this is what we should be doing instead. Um, and so the best example is probably the one that everybody sort of points to, which is the Brent Scowcroft NSC of the George H.W. Bush era. Um, and the person I focus on in that case is Richard Haas, who has gone on to sort of fame as Mo on Morning Joe and the bestseller list and the Council on Foreign Relations. But he sort of worked with Scowcroft to sort of ask critical questions along the way and push for initiative within the agencies. And I think you can kind of see his work on the Gulf War from the from even before the invasion happens, trying to get the president the information he needed, and then trying to get the plans from a very reluctant military, including Colin Powell. He and Colin Powell had sort of friction throughout the throughout the uh, lead up to the Gulf War. Do you, th the, do you think that, um, sorry to interrupt, no, do, okay. do you think that primacy in that period had something to do with the what was happening with the US and in, in the world? I mean, just having, you know, 1989, 1990, coming off defeat of the Soviet Union, able to marshal dozens of countries to come together, a coalition, Persian Gulf War. I mean, we were at the kind of top in terms the of- apex of power. Yeah. Right? The, the, the peak unipolar sort right. of moment. Yeah, no, I think that there certainly is, the example is um, probably the best one of sort of the post-Cold War in the sense of the height of American power, but it still required the plans to, to implement it. And for a long time, much longer than I think a lot of the current, the popular histories this the war sort of demonstrate, the goal, the generals didn't want to give the right plans to the to the White House. Part of that was it was hard, and part of it was they just disagreed with trying to eject Iraq from Kuwait. And so Scowcroft working with Bob Gates, who was Deputy National Security Advisor, uh, and Haas slowly just kept pushing, 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 and eventually said, if you don't do it, we're going to do it. Um, but they, I think the reason I think they're the best examples, they never took the following step, which was to write the plan themselves and say, here you go. Because they well, knew they had to do it. So, I, I mean, interestingly enough, you know, I was at a, you know, much more junior level, but I was in the military and serving mm -hmm. on the, the on the chairman's staff during this period. And it was clear that there was some structural, you know, kind of friction that existed, not only between the chairman and the White House, but also the chairman and the Secretary of Defense. What do you think was the reason behind that? Was it sort of just a different issue, sort of bureaucratic roles? Rich was talking about, you know, right after coming out of the the end of the Cold War, but we were also coming into a new period, um, Goldwater Nichols, the reform mm -hmm. of that basically made the chairman so powerful that that's one theory another is that the that the legacy of vietnam had a huge impact on how powell thought about conflict and was inc incredibly wary of these you know political people that he thought were rushing into war what what as you look back at original notes and the like what where do you come up with here yeah and so i looked at I think 10,000 documents from nine different archives and interviewed, I did like a hundred or so interviews, including with Colin Powell, Scowcroft, Haas, you know, uh, Vice Chairman uh, David Jeremiah and a bunch mm -hmm. of others to try and get at that critical issue. And I think that you, you've pointed to two important things, which is this was the height of America's power, but it didn't necessarily feel that way at the Pentagon, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's two really interesting, I think, pieces of that. One was there was a long 
fear, I think, at long hangover from Vietnam, but also Desert One, uh, Beirut, the Beirut bombing, which I go into great detail here because it was mm-hmm. so uh, a part of the NSC's history. Um, and I think Colin Powell is one of those characters that recurs throughout this book, all the way from Carter to Obama, in part because he was a part of this sort of running conversation and this running concern of getting involved in something we that we didn't have critical, vital national interest in. And that was his main issue on on Kuwait. And to a degree, he's also kind of a weird guy, right? Because not only was he chairman, but he had been national security advisor, right? right? Um, and so he, I think, ran into trouble, not just with the White House, but with Ch- Dick Cheney, who was the de- defense secretary, because he said, this isn't worth our trouble. The second thing I think is you had is, is uh, this evolution in American military power that was like, I think what you would see in the cold, in the Gulf War in the sense of the sort of tomahawks and everything else, the precision guided munitions. But there was a sort of sense that one, weren't sure how good it would be, right? There was a running question about how much this had evolved. And the second thing was, there was a feeling at Pentagon that you preserved your power rather than sort of necessarily used it. And that was a sort of hesitation that persisted through the Reagan years and, and into the Bush. So I was asking you about kind of what didn't work as well. Mm-hmm. And and you've got this op-ed that came out recently, which I assume is built off the book, entitled How John Bolton Broke the National Security Council. And as we just think about the last few weeks, I mean, uh, it, I would say watching Secretary Pompeo kind of the day that Bolton was fired or resigned, however you want to pick your facts of what actually happened, um, the glee on Pompeo's face was just, he, he couldn't actually hide how happy he was. <laughs> um, you know, so what, what happens when you have, and this happens a lot, Kurt and I have seen this, you've seen this, when the National Security Advisor doesn't actually get along with the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, there is this kind of natural tension there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so A, how important is it that they get along? And B, tell us what happened in, in Bolton's case specifically. Why did he break the NSC? Yeah. Speaking of unilateral okay. power yeah. moments, I yeah. think the height of Pompeo's power might have been that day. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been all downhill it's gone since. Down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is how Washington works some days. Exactly. You know, I think that um we you know there have been plenty of times where there have been disagreements. Um, you know, I think that we I mentioned the Reagan administration, the fights between Weinberger and Schultz were legendary, right? Uh, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, Casper um, Weinberger, were legendary. There's been other times, right? Um, and I sort of chronicle, you know, bad example is the sort of uh, the coup in, in in South Vietnam. I talk about Michael Forrestal's sort of unique role on the staff and trying to push for the coup against DM in 1963. And there's these moments where there's just natural tension inherently in bureaucracy. There's natural tension between powerful personalities. And to a degree, there's natural t- tensions when people have distant, different ideas, right? Um, um, but I think where you run into real problems is when trust just completely evaporates uh, and there's no benefit of the doubt given. And I think we've all been in these situations and work environments where all of a sudden the person, you just don't trust that they're, what they're saying and you react to everything adversely. Uh, and I think we've seen that um, in recent times. I think the the, the, the the disagreements that I got inspired by, which was the Iraq war examples between Colin, pa- between Colin Powell and then Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and then Don Rumsfeld and Condi Rice. I think those have are good examples of when things just don't work. Um, and I think that the reason that Dick, uh, 
Brent Scowcroft, Richard Haas, and everybody could push on Colin Powell and Dick Cheney in 1990 and 1991 was there was a level of trust there. So I think trust is the sort of coin of the realm in effective policymaking uh, and effective national security policymaking. And I think that's what has completely evaporated in Washington um, in the Trump administration in the sense that there is, I think, a particular gift of Donald Trump's is that he tends to bring out the sort of um, distrustful part of people. Um, and I think it's done it to cabinet secretaries as unique as Jim Manis, Tillerson, and everybody else, to, I think, Pompeo, and I think, to a degree, John Bolton. What I think John Bolton did was he, I think, has this had this idea um, about how decisions should be made, which was and it's actually based on his misunderstanding of Prince Scowcroft, which is this idea that just a bunch of us sitting around a room with the president making a decision. The process, the meetings, the DCs, the PCs, all of it, it's just, it keeps people busy. But at the end of the day, this is the critical thing. And my hunch is that what's happened and what I write about in the article is, is that Don, John Bolton was such an expert and such an insider that he basically convinced or at least gave Donald Trump the license to not have to worry about the rest of government and just make decisions with a few people in a room. And I think John Bolton was interested in trying to keep Pompeo out of that room when he could. Yeah. And unfortunately, eventually Donald Trump didn't want him in the room either. Um, and so he basically pushed uh, John Bolton out after he had broken the National Security Council and has now, I think, is running roughshod uh, mm -hmm. as we're sort of seeing almost daily. The interesting thing, Rich, you know, we talked about this with John, like we'll go on to other issues beyond the NSC, many of the original architects came up with this idea of the NSC because they were worried that um, Roosevelt made too many decisions independently without consulting his cabinet. And so the, one of the, Forstall, one of the great architects of our post-Cold War world, doesn't get enough uh, you know, credit for that, but he actually wanted to create a set of institutions that binded the president to his cabinet and forced him to consult. And so most of the NSC, NSC uh, uh, 46, 47, was really about creating these mechanisms that would create a, you know, kind of a paper trail and a series of strategic, you know, guidelines for how policy would be made. And the original architects, the idea was that the National Security Advisor would be a very junior officer, a retired mm -hmm. lieutenant colonel or someone who would basically keep the paper running. And it really wasn't until the end of the Eisenhower, but really the Kennedy um, uh, world when Bundy became the really the most well-known, that, that foreign policy in many respects started to be shaped at the White House. And so the irony of the original architect's desire to basically force a president to work with the cabinet. What really has happened, he's created an institution that allows for much greater independence of the president in certain circumstances, which we saw in Iran-Contra. And I would argue we see some of that today even. Yeah, I mean, I think we basically created a government and created institutions to make sure the president didn't have to run foreign policy alone, right? Like there was a suspicion, it wasn't just distrust, it was, this is too much for any one guy, whether it's Franklin Roosevelt or anybody else. And to a degree that this system of meetings and memoranda that has sort of evolved to include principals, committees, deputies, committees, and things along those lines is there to basically make sure the president doesn't have to think of all the ideas, do all the sorts of things. And to a degree, we talk about the unipolar moment, but this is a central, you only get the United States as a trusted broker in the world if there's some belief that 
the United States is making decisions in a rational, normal way. And to a degree, um, I think that that was a key part of, the NSC has been a key part of America's sort of global leadership and the trust and integrity and to a degree the legitimacy of it. And what Donald Trump, I think, has done is, is John Bolton basically has reverted, given him and gave him the license to revert back to just presidential juggling is what Roosevelt called it, right? Making policy by the seat of his pants. And that's a deeply scary moment. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things I'd say about that. One, you, you mentioned... Um kind of John Bolton as expert would go in as national security advisor. I mean, let's remember, I'm not trying to make a political point, but really let's remember why John Bolton was there because he couldn't be confirmed by the Senate for any job in the foreign policy establishment, not by Republicans, not by Democrats. So I, I mean, the thought that he was there a few feet down the hall from the president providing national security advice, I found uh, interesting, ironic, dangerous. Um, <laughs> I, I will also say what I saw, and I'll just maybe just bring up a specific example with regard to India, for example, where I where I served. Um, the NSC process became really unbalanced over the last couple of years. In other words, the strategic people who valued the relationship for all that it has to offer about India's role in Asia and how important supporting a democracy is were often not heard as much as. USTR. I love our friends at USTR, but they've dominated this relationship over the last two years, largely because of the breakdown of any coherent national security process. So mm -hmm. USTR can just walk into the Oval Office and say, here's what, here's what we should do today with regard to some pretty major partnerships around the world. Yeah. I mean, the integrate, driving sort of an integrated foreign policy is one of the congressional reasons they, they invented the National Security Council in 1947, right? And so to a degree, what Trump has sort of done is, is sort of gotten rid of uh, sort of taken the power of the staff and to a degree, the sort of authority of the staff and the personnel of the staff and applied it to his own agenda rather than the sort of congressionally mandated integration that's been sort of required. And you see it in that issue, you see it in a lot of things. And, and it's no wonder this sort of transactional nature to foreign policy has sort of taken on because if it's one person making deals, that's going to be what it becomes. I will say back to, um, you know, when Kurt and I was there, were there, and when you were there, John, um, the power of the National Security Council was also critiqued, got too powerful, too much process, too much. I, I remember either, you know, being a very much a backbencher in a lot of those meetings, but walking in where you would have cabinet secretaries surprised about the piece of paper or papers they were receiving on that given day. And Carter even writes about this in his memoir, mm -hmm. like basically don't ever do this again. And it, I think people are surprised. They think, you know, if you're secretary of state or secretary of defense or secretary of treasury, you're in on the takeoff landing, every aspect of what's about to happen. And that hasn't always been the case. No. And I mean, I think there's, you could definitely end up in a Goldilocks problem where the Obama NSC was too strong and the Trump NSC is too weak and right. is it, you know, they're the search for just right. But I do think that, um, to a degree, I don't think you necessarily get, uh, the Trump NSC without the sort of hangover from the Obama NSC. There were very specific opinions about that in Washington. And to a degree, I think um, some of the early members of the Trump White House and the Trump team, whether it was 
Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson or anybody else were on guard against a strong NSC. Um, and so to a degree, that is definitely a piece of how Washington works. And I think people forget how much permanent government there is and how much continuity there is. And to a degree, how much um, those who are dealing with the Obama and a seat of frustrations have acted differently under the Trump administration. Yeah, I, I can remember back one of the critiques of George W. Bush of Clinton was, again, too much power centralized in the National Security Council. So it's, this is not the first time that mm -hmm. we've been through this process where there was an attempt to devolve power more generally. I, I wonder, though, how much of this is not political and how much of it is just actual. I think the longer you serve in the White House around the president, the more you want to have control over stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that the president, President Trump, is exhibiting that right now is he wants to reduce the size of the NSC, not because he wants to make it less powerful, but I think he wants to make it smaller, more elite in his mind, and better able to do what he wants and with fewer risk of leaks. I think that's his thinking. So I don't think he's about devolving power out to other people because I don't fundamentally think he trusts other agencies I'm not sure he trusts the White House either, but if they're closer to him, at least he has a chance, a better chance, I would argue, in his mind, to try to affect outcomes. Yeah, and I think the the one thing I always, when I'm sort of, I go around the country talking about this book, the one thing I always tell people is good government's hard, right? And and you sort of get the frustrations when you're a president. And I mean, I think Truman said it best about Eisenhower. Like, Dwight's going to get in here and he's going to give all these orders and then he's going to find out nobody does anything, right? <laughs> and it is like this great example. And I think Every president learns like that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Every yeah. president learns that lesson the hard way. And then they find this very strong, very capable, very impressive group of people who are working there and they can help them fill the gaps. I think the challenge is um, that perhaps over the past really 20 years in the post 9-11 years, what you found is, is too often the White House has just kept filling the gaps yeah. and it has led to a collapse in really successful or functioning good government, right? And good government is government that you co-op, you convince to do mm -hmm. your thing, and you and you basically let them think it's their own idea so that they go run with it. I got to say one yeah. thing just on, on that, just as Rich was talking about it. One of the things that I was struck by, during, you know, you're out of government for years. You come back in. I came back in in the Obama administration. I remember one of my first things was going to a meeting at the White House at the NSC, and I was just shocked at the advanced state of the technology. I mean, yeah. it was just incredible, huge screens and unbelievable ability to access inf information. And I went back to my office at the State Department. And I'm like, I'm on the best Wang computer yeah. money could buy. I've got a rotary phone right. to dial yeah. out to get the operator. Yeah. I mean, it's just the, the difference was just remarkable. Yeah. And it's, I wrote a piece for, for Wired in May when the book came out because I tracked the technological evolution is one piece, right? And to a degree, the president always gets the best and the yeah. fastest, right? Um, and the NSC is able to leverage that same tech to sort of fight for their own ideas. Um, and I think we've especially seen that in the war, in the post 9-11 years where they've not only gotten Cipernet and some of the top secret email, but they've also gotten the Tamburg machines, the video teleconference and those things that they're able to sort of, you know, video teleconference you in Delhi or anybody in a war zone and say, hey, what's going on? Um, and that gives at least the perception of the ability to manage something as complicated as war, which I think we're all, you know, uh, when we do our real reading and we do our Klauswitz and our rails, remember, it's harder to do than anybody thinks.
John, I want to uh, go back now a little bit to your service with Secretary Carter. Sure. And I, I want to do that because if there's a person, again, just thinking about the U.S.-India relationship, I, I can't think of a more impactful person over the eight years of the Obama administration. And Carter had two jobs. He was undersecretary for acquisition, technology, if I got the name yeah. right, technology, uh, and secretary. And um, just had a had a very sophisticated, very advanced view of our relationship with India. I, I never thought I'd be in a job where the secretary of defense would call me and say, what are we doing for India this week? You know, what have you done positively? Now, he was doing that because strong Indian military and economy was good for the United States. That was mm -hmm. his fundamental view. But he also was just a firm believer. He would repeat this phrase over and over again. And you must have had it in 20 speeches, if I remember correctly. You know, America is a Pacific power and we always will be. Mm -hmm. He really believed that. Just can you share a little light on, you know, what his thinking was? And, you know, he, he really spent so much time and effort on it. No, and I, I, I think as somebody who sort of got to spend uh, a couple, two and a half, three years in government, um, you know, I went in interested in Asia and came out sort of a deeper believer in America's um, sort of efforts to rebalance and do all those sorts of things, right? In part because the Defense Department believed that. I, I noticed how no one uses Pivot anymore. No, no, but no. There no, was no. that. There was a couple of months right before the election <laughs> that people would come to me and go, "I really like the Pivot," but then immediately after the election, it's like rebalance. Well, it was for a while there. Um, you know, a couple of Carter lines were getting used by Mattis, and by I think one got used by Pence. The fly sail operate line got used a few times, and it was always funny to be like. Well, there's still somebody in the bureaucracy that has some power because they keep inserting all the good lines that we came what up is with. It again? The will fly sail operate wherever international law allows. The South China Sea line. That's good. Did, yeah. you, did you do that? That yeah. was Carter's line. You know, I like that. I just that. I just, yeah. uh, I just wrote it. But the uh, <laughs> I just wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just helped edit. You know. <laughs> yeah, I got put it, it on paper. Okay. Enough. But I think, that's all right. Only our listeners will know. Yeah. Well, that's so. I think that the thing is, is that number one. Ash Carter sort of felt this in his bones, right? Asia Pacific. And I think to a degree, the principle, those sort of principles that were so important to the region and those that were sort of a party to them, right? Whether it's India, Japan, and things along those lines. I think he believed strongly in this sort of um, opportunity in Asia, whether it was economic, military, um, diplomatic, cultural. Uh, but then I think there was a little piece of him that sort of loved the challenge, right? And loved how complicated Asia was and to a degree loved... Um, um, the sort of the pieces you had to pull together. Right. And um, he obviously saw Ch India as one of the great opportunities. And I think he thought India saw the United States as a great opportunity. Yeah. He had this really holistic view of how we should approach this though. And there's another uh, kind of, again, famous quote, famous for the maybe three of us around the table. <laughs> but, you know, when he was talking about the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, he said, uh, TPP is, is as important as an aircraft carrier. What did he mean by that? Yeah, so it's a good it's a good line. It was in one of his first Asia Pacific speeches at I believe it was Arizona State in April of 2015. <laughs> Not that I like distinctly recall right, right. the flight out there. Um, but what was interesting about the line is is that um, it kind of does what those sorts of lines do, which is they sort of work their way up the bureaucracy and land in the piece of paper, and then um, he sort of I remember in classic Ash Carter fashion read it. And, and immediately did like all the thousand calculations that go into a line like that. Like, what's Congress going to think? 
What's a what's the Navy going to think? What are partners in industry going to think? What's Asia going to think? And he sort of tweaked it enough that it, he felt comfortable saying it, but it also had tremendous power. And I still remember one of the reporters on the plane got an advanced copy of the speech. And then she was like, you edited the speech, the line just a little bit. <laughs> right. And it was perfect. And I think that he was, I, we joked that he was the secretary of, uh, you know, the secretary of trade. And I was the assistant secretary of public affairs on trade because he I think carried as much weight or as much communications weight on trade as he could well, in the last year. It's a great line because it it also shows when people talk about, you know, all the tools in the toolbox, he really was saying, look, if we don't have our economic and diplomatic game here, we can't just win this militarily. Mm-hmm. The other and this this next question is really to both you and Kurt, and not to get too wonky, but um he did talk a lot. He Carter talked a lot about having a networked security architecture in the Pacific, right? I know all our, our listeners just turned, turned off, but it's important because I'm not sure we're doing that today, but maybe both, I asked both of you, A, what is it? Is it the right way to go? And are, are we actually carrying it out? That's out. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of overstep in, with Kurt here. He's the expert on this, but I can say a few words if you want to. I mean, Rich, it's a good point. I would just simply say, I think there's a recognition that the United States helped create this operating system in Asia that's been good for a lot of countries. And it has weaved together a number of principles and capabilities of the United States. For that to thrive and grow requires the support of our partners and uh, other leading nations. And so right now in the world, the countries that are really making the most interesting dynamic decisions about foreign policy and national security are those middle and upper level nations, India, Japan, Australia, South Korea, others in and around Asia, including Indonesia. It's in our interest to link up with them, not just in trade, but in defense and security and other ways, because it serves as a force multiplier. And it also creates a much more of a signal of uh, joint support on issues that are contentious going forward. So I'm, I'm with Rich. I think it's incredibly important, but I'm afraid that the message that we are inadvertently sending often is you're on your own and that we're about us right now. And we're less, Focus and committed to this operating system that has defined American power in a bipartisan way for almost 70 years. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is, is that maybe the only thing more boring than a discussion of network and architecture <laughs> is the debates about speeches about whether you call it a network or an architecture, since I sat through a lot of meetings on this particular topic. But the one thing I'd say is, is that, um, number one, I think it makes inherent sense to everybody from an ensign in the Navy or to an ensign in the Indian Navy to an American working somewhere in the Middle West to say, let's make the sum better than like the sum of its parts. Let's make Mm -hmm. the whole better than the sum of its parts. And so that makes sense to do that. Um, But I think it's completely contrary to the sort of transactional approach to foreign policy that we see today, which is like, let's just make a deal with this country when you're not thinking about the whole to get the best out of the whole. Right. And it kind of goes back to your the NSC issue. Actually, all roads lead back to do you have a coordinated strategy mm-hmm. and approach? I, John, I wanted to, I, we're going to be wrapping up in a moment, but I wanted to ask you a question about your most recent career move. So you're at uh, Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And in that capacity, you're able to see UPenn is one of the most internationalist campuses, very you know broad world vision about what its responsibilities and commitments are. 
um, you know, two areas where students have been very active in recent years have been from the Middle East and from Asia, mm -hmm. China in particular. I'm curious, do you see, because of both the, you know, kind of the new Cold War between the United States and China and issues associated with, you know, tensions with Islamic states, do you see those relationships between UPenn and other countries on an academic level um, eroding? Do you see less interest in terms of people applying to UPenn from other countries falling? What, what's what's the trend lines for us? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that Perry Worldhouse is, you know, a new idea, to, like one of the world, one of America's oldest universities, right? It basically was a place to house everything global on campus. So it was a think tank. It was a place for classrooms. It was a place where all the study abroad kids from abroad from other countries come and learn how to like deal with the metro, the subway in Philly, right? Like it's like, this is where they come to learn those sorts of things. So it's kind of an exciting place. Uh, and you're right. I mean, the diversity is staggering, right? Um, and I think a place like UPlan is where you see the great risks in this moment and the great opportunities in this moment of sort of increased global competition. The risks are that, that you have this huge number of diverse kids from every country on the world coming to one place to study and learn, whether it's law, medicine, business, things along those lines. And it's amazing because when they come, they come open, they come engaged, they come willing to debate the policies, whether it's Hong Kong or anything else, they come and they argue it out. Even if they take a contrary controversial line, they come prepared to do it and they learn how to make those arguments. But I think the risks are, um, I don't know the exact data on, on Penn right now, but there's real challenges on visas uh, coming from China. There's real challenges, um, I think, on applications coming from other parts of the world. And the risks of this moment is, is that this real opportunity to, to sort of create more global young people, which is one of the reasons I went to Penn after leaving Washington is that you could really lose that opportunity. And, and, you know, I think we all know the history of when people start receding back to their boundaries and students start stop studying abroad, like whether it's a regional issue or big global changes, bad things tend to happen. And so I think that Perry Worldhouse has a mandate. And I think right now the students are engaged and interested in it. And, you know, you guys are both welcome mm -hmm. to come up anytime. That's great. I intend to make the visit. John, this has been sensational. I do note that there has been a outrush of people that left to turned off halfway into our podcast but it was not because of rich talking about network it's people <laughs> rushing out to buy your book <laughs> and we really wish you the best thank you so much for joining us today and we really appreciate yeah, it yeah john tell tell us uh tell us the name of the book again just so Called, people go out and buy it so yeah. one brief story yeah. kurt his biggest piece of advice in my dissertation defense was you got to get a better title and so i finally came up with white house warriors how the national security council has transformed the american way of war it's available everywhere. And does it have Kurt's seal of approval as a title? It does. There you go. That's awesome. So go out and get the book. Uh, John, congratulations. I've, I've been to Perry World House before. Look forward to coming back again. It's a terrific book. Really important and, and timely story. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.